my mom took a job at an illegal nursing home. She's blue, she's not breathing, and she's in the snow. My 52-year-old ass like lifted up in waves I never thought possible. Long, long story short, all right. Long story short, past lives. Hello, I am super nervous. <laughs> Just so you guys know, can you guys give me like a clap or something? <laughs> Good evening, everybody. How are you? Good. I think we're going to try to get started. Um, so yes, thank you again for coming to uh, another installment of Long Story Short. I want to thank 3S Art Space for hosting um, again. Um, the next event that we're going to be having uh, for Long Story Short is going to be on May 18th. Um, here in this room. Uh, it will be a collaboration with uh, WSCA's True Tales Radio, which you can hear every month on the last Tuesday of the month uh, at 6 p.m. on uh, WSCA. This event will feature uh, some of our regular storytellers, including Debbie Kane, Kathy Wolf, and Michael Bullaris, who many of you know as Kung Fu Mike. Uh, two weeks after that, uh, we have been invited uh, to the WSCA studios as the guests of True, True Tales Radio. And for that event, we're going to have on the radio live uh, Christy Martino, Mark Adams, and uh, Dagan Megerditch. So it's going to be a really exciting month of May for us. Uh, after that, um, we're, we're now uh, booking for our July 20th, long story short. Um, the theme for that evening is quitting. And so I'm sure there's plenty, plenty to go around on that one. Um, all right, our first storyteller tonight is Aaron LaPlante. Uh, Aaron LaPlante has returned home to the Seacoast area after exploring places like Chicago and Boston, only to learn 20 years later after leaving that the Portsmouth area is the best place anyone could possibly live. By day, she works as a director of operations for an appraisal company in Netta, Mass. And by night, she escapes home to Kittery, where she has become a huge fan of the Rite Aid on Shapley Road. Erin <laughs> writes, writes a blog called Typical Erin for about five to seven of her friends, all of whom can be found in the audience tonight. <laughs> I don't think I need to ask for a warm welcome for Erin LaPlante. Hello, I am super nervous. <laughs> Just so you guys know, can you guys give me like a clap or something? <laughs> um, okay, um, in my, the theme is past lives, you guys know this. In my past life, I was um, clumsy and prone to mishaps and just sort of surrounded by chaos on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> when I was uh, in sixth grade, um, I grew up in a really small town, Berlin, New Hampshire, which for those of you who don't know is like Canada. Um, <laughs> um, so I, had a, I went to a really small middle school and uh, on one side of the school there was a fifth and sixth grade and on the other side was a seventh and eighth grade. And it was connected by uh, our gym. And um, in fifth and sixth grade we were in the world of like having one teacher all day. And the seventh and eighth graders had, you know, like periods 
where they switched every class. It was fancy to us fifth and sixth graders. And they, they were cooler in general. They had better clothes than we did, and they were in real relationships. Um, so one day, my friend Crystal and I were walking from the fifth and sixth grade side to the seventh and eighth grade side, and when you came into the gym uh, at the top of the stairs, there were probably like 15 or 20 stairs, we were walking in, and the, the eighth grade boys were at the end of one of their periods, and they were standing at the bottom of the stairs. And they were all really good looking, you know, like Brad Pitt, George Clooney type men. At the time, I was probably thinking like Jordan Knight or Kirk Cameron, but really, really good looking boys. So, and I remember thinking like, I had to look good, you know, walking down the stairs. So I took the first step and then I turned to Crystal to talk to her just because I thought that would make me look cooler. And I skipped a step. <laughs> And my foot landed on the next step down, and then my body started landing on the next step, and then I just kind of somersaulted down the steps, and I landed in a heap at the bottom at the feet of all the really hot eighth grade boys. And if anybody had missed it, Miss um, Lawton, the gym teacher, who was clear across the way, was running, being like, are you okay, Erin? So... Um, Sometimes when I think about my earliest memory, that is what I think about. Not because it was my earliest memory, I was in sixth grade, but um, it was the first time I remember being just completely mortified. Um, and it just continued when I was, um, <laughs> when I was 11, I started my period and um, I only knew that because I was wearing white shorts in the middle of a water fight with the boys <laughs> and um, one of them asked why my shorts were pink. Um, and when I was 13, the junior high principal came to the door of our class and he held up this really nice suede coat and hanging out of it was a maxi pad <laughs> with wings. <laughs> and I couldn't crouch down fast enough before Matt Watson pointed out that it was mine. Um, and when I was 14, my parents decided to move us actually down here to Dover, New Hampshire. And uh, moving from Berlin to Dover uh, may as well be moving from Berlin to Manhattan. It was a huge culture shock for me. Um, my first day of school, and you know, your first day of school, you wear your like solid outfit. I was wearing um, a, an off-white leotard the ones that like buttoned <laughs> and light green jeans and a vest with like a country scene on it. <laughs> it had like a fence and then some birds were flying and then these mini cowboy boots and I thought I looked fantastic. <laughs> and I bought the whole thing for like 11.50 at Macy's, which is something I told anyone who would listen. Um, so, you know, not totally cool. And um, in Berlin, I was in band. I've always been involved in music. And in Berlin, band was just like you were in band. It was no big deal. And in Dover, forgive me, George, uh, band, my drum instructor is here tonight. Um, <laughs> band was not cool. It was like instantly geek status. We had those, it was marching bands. So you had those wool uniforms and like the hats with the feather and... 
Um, and I played flute in Berlin, and you couldn't play flute in marching band. You had to play piccolo. So, and I hated piccolo. So, already being uncool, I decided to switch to bass drum. <laughs> and in case anyone is unclear, that does not instantly shoot you to prom queen status. <laughs> and. <laughs> And when you're already sort of clumsy and you have to walk with a bass drum and marching band, like, it, I have no idea what I was thinking. Um, and like the sort of cliche geek, I had a crush on one of the football players, which is so ridiculous. And um, he's finishing up a sentence at the Dover prison. <laughs> True story. So it's okay, it worked out. But um, at the time, I would have died if he talked to me. I would have died if he would have acknowledged my ex existence at all. So we used to practice in the parking lot across from the high school, and we had to roll stuff. I'm not going to roll stuff for you guys, but um, I wasn't very good at it. So uh, the only time my boyfriend, which is what I called him in my head, um, <laughs> acknowledged my status is when I was, like, roll-stepping, and he was driving by with a bunch of the football players, at the same moment that I tripped over my bass drum and landed on it and then rolled to the side. <laughs> and he beeped the horn and yelled out, all right, let's play it! So, not good. Um, and, and, you know, it just sort of continued throughout my adult life. One time I was at a gas station in Dover and I was cleaning out my car with one of those vacuums and my dress got caught in the vacuum. <laughs> So my ass was clear sight for everyone at the mobile on the run, and the employees had to come out and turn it off for me because I couldn't get it out. So, <laughs> I'm, I, and there's so many more. I'm not going to tell you more, but there's so many more. Um, so each time one of these stories happened, it kind of built into this reputation that I created for myself. Because I tell these stories all the time. My friends that are here know all of the stories I just told you. And it just kind of morphed into my reputation for being a little chaotic. To the point that one time one of my friends was telling one of her friends, who to this day I have not met, about one of these stories. And in response, this random woman rolled her eyes and was like, typical Aaron. <laughs> So we joked about it so much. Each time something like this would happen, my friends and I would be like, typical Aaron, you know me. And I think that's the kind of, that's the woman I stuck to. And one of my friends continually, every time I would tell her this, a story, she'd say, you have to write it down. Like, you can't keep telling these stories. They're good stories. You got to write them down. To the point that, I mean, she didn't let up on me. She still has not let up on me. Um, so I started writing a blog, and I call it Typical Aaron. And um, in the beginning, it became somewhere that, like, I started to do it because I wanted to make people laugh. I wanted to make my five to seven friends laugh. And um, it became this kind of therapeutic way for me to, to deal with these stories. Um, but then the more I wrote, I realized I had wrote about all the embarrassing things. There's a lot of embarrassing things. Like, there's 300 stories on my blog that are all just that content. Um, but I wrote about all of these things, and then after I was sort of writing, done writing these down, I just started writing about life in general, just what was going on in my life. And it wasn't always embarrassing, although a lot of it is, or not always chaotic or not mishaps. It was just life. 
And it's difficult because it's all, I'm very honest. I mean, everything I just told you guys is very honest. So it's sometimes really difficult to hit publish when I'm going to write my blog. Um, because some of the stories are really personal. Like last week, I told this story about how my daughter reached under my pillow and found my, my vibrator. And um, she asked if it was a wine stopper. It does not look like a wine stopper, you guys. It doesn't. Um, my poor daughter. Um, and, you know, and, and I write about yelling at the top of my lungs at that same daughter, you know, cursing her existence in the same moments that I'm, you know, picturing like I could, I would die without her. Um, and just, you know, struggles with work and fights with my parents and falling in love and breaking up 25 times in the past year. And, um, and each time I would tell one of these stories, I'd connect with someone, like whether it was one of my friends or someone that I didn't know all that well, I'd find some connection. Someone, my story would resonate with someone. And I found it so unbelievable because what I find, and you guys probably already know because you're smarter than me, but is that none of us are alone which is so powerful. Uh, I think one of the most powerful things about storytelling, just that no matter what, someone somewhere is going through the same thing that you're going through, or someone is having the same thoughts that you are. And living in such a heavily disconnected world, I find that incredibly comforting. Um, someone has, you know, tripped down 15 stairs and landed at Ryan McKay's feet uh, in sixth grade. <laughs> And, you know, someone has tripped over themselves in the middle of the city and shown their naked ass to all of Chicago. And maybe not someone here, but someone's daughter has found their vibrator. <laughs> um, but what I've also figured out through writing about these stories is that it's, um, they're, they're just moments. They're not, they don't define me. And I've let that girl, that crazy chaotic mishap, you know, totally uncool girl go. Um, and realize that's not who I am. It doesn't define me at all. I am, you know, I, I am all of those things. I'm imperfect, but that's not all I am. Um, it's just a story to be told. So, thank you. What a great way to start off the night. Thank you so much, Erin. Uh, next up, we have Larry Clow. Larry is the editor of The Sound, a weekly news, arts, and culture paper covering the seacoast. Uh, he's a writer, an occasional teacher, and he's working on his first book, People You May Know, about adoption and social media. Please welcome Larry Clow. It's okay. So I want you to take a moment and picture this. It's 1997. It's a Friday night around Christmas time. And I'm 15 years old. And I am in the kitchen of a church basement in Manchester, New Hampshire. And I'm trying to put on a chicken costume. Except I can't really get the zipper on the back. Um, and I'm like struggling with it. And then all of a sudden my mom comes into the kitchen. Are you ready, she says, or do you need help? Yes, I say, I need some help. So she comes over and she zips up my costume and she says, all right, 
You know what to do, right? First, the DJ is going to start playing the music, and then you're going to go out, and you're going to do the dance. You know how to do the dance, right? And I look at her, and I say, yes, I know how to do the chicken dance. And she says, well, you know, I'm just asking. I'm making sure. She says, so you do the dance, and then I start chasing you around, uh, and, then, and then you come back in here. And I say, all right, I know what to do. So she takes a step back, and she just, like, looks at me. She's like, oh, you're so cute. They're going to love you out there. And I grumble, yeah, okay. Uh, and she says, all right, I'm going to go out, out in the hall, listen to the music and, and for the music and get ready. So she goes out, and, and here I am in a, in a chicken costume, and I'm surrounded in this kitchen by these platters of finger sandwiches and mini meatballs and, and all of this food, and I'm trying to amp myself up to go out and entertain this crowd of like 40 smartly dressed senior citizens who are, who are in the hall sitting at tables. Um, except I don't really have a lot of time to amp myself up for this because the, the DJ has impeccable timing and the immortal opening notes of the chicken dance begin to play. So I take a deep breath and I burst through the door and all of these old people, uh, you know, about a dozen tables worth of old people start going wild, as wild as like a bunch of old people who have been eating mini hot dogs for two hours can, can really go. And they're cheering and they're clapping and I'm coming out and I'm like dancing sort of, I'm kind of doing the chicken dance, but I'm also doing the twist in this weird way and I'm sort of like hopping around and, and everyone's laughing. And my grandmother, who's at a table near the front of the room, she starts shouting. She goes, go honey bun, go honey bun, yeah! And she, she's shouting in the same way that she shouts at the TV when she's watching pro wrestling. Uh, and for a moment, I think I should be embarrassed that she's using my childhood nickname here and then I remember that I'm in a chicken costume and I'm dancing in front of this crowd of people. And so I look over and then my mom starts joining in and she goes to the buffet table and she picks up a serving spoon and then she starts chasing me around. Uh, and we're, it's like we're running, but it's actual literal slow motion because she has bad ankles and she can't really run. Uh, and I'm wearing a chicken outfit, which is not known for mobility. Um, and so we're just like very slowly running around this room while the chicken dance plays and these old people are cheering, cheering me on. Uh, and we're making this circuit around the, the room full of tables and they're like reaching their hands out and I don't know what to do because do they want to high five me? Are they trying to grab me? And I'm thinking like, how long does the chicken dance song go on for? This, um, and so the, the answer is of course, it's an eternity. It's, it's, a, it's an entire lifetime. And so when I finally make it all the way back around the room, back to the, the buffet table, um, you know, all of the old people start Chapping, uh, uh, clapping and cheering and some of them are standing up and most of them are just like eating their dinner again and I, I go in the I go in the kitchen and uh, you know my mom bursts in and she's like you did such a great job that was that was so wonderful and I say oh yeah I guess so uh, and she says well you know hurry up and, and, and get changed because they're all going to want to talk to you out there um, because she thinks I'm a celebrity now because I just ran around in a chicken outfit so if you're wondering why at the age of 15 was I spending a Friday night in the basement of uh, St. Catherine's Catholic Church in Manchester dressed in a chicken outfit, um, well, t 20 years later, I'm also still trying to figure that out. But the, the kind of short answer is, is that uh, my past life when I was a kid from about the age of 10 all the way up through my early 20s, I was my family's sort of 
number one entertainment source for senior citizens in the greater Manchester area. Um, it's weird. It was, a, it was not my preferred career. Um, so the way it happened, it was this sort of very perfect geriatric storm um, that, that started when I was 10. Um, that year, uh, my grandfather, who had been retired, he, he got tired of being retired. He'd only been retired for like five years. Uh, and he started a small travel junket business. And his business was uh, ferrying these busloads of senior citizens uh, to uh, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada, and beautiful Branson, Missouri. Uh, I remember those adjectives because I had to make the flyers announcing these trips. Um, he did this four or five times a year. Um, and uh, at the same time, that same year, my mom took a job at an illegal nursing home uh, that was run by, and I, I swear to God, I am not making this up, it was one run by an ex-country music singer named Bambi Lynn. Um, spoiler, the nursing home closed after like seven months. Um, but anyway, uh, my, my mother and my grandfather were kind of the, the dominant figures in our family. And because they had that, you know, they shared the philosophy that, you know, the family that does everything together will stay together forever in some kind of like psychotic, terrible death spiral. Um, the rest of the family was roped into doing all of these activities with them. Um, and so my, my father and my grandmother and I all helped out with the, with the trips to Las Vegas and Branson. Um, my father and I were uh, going to the nursing homes that my mom worked at all the time. Uh, some, at least once a week, usually like three or four times a week. Uh, so much so that like everyone there knew exactly who we were. So this was sort of our family business. Our family business was hanging out with old people all the time. And uh, I was my family's most valuable employee. It, you probably can't tell now, but when I was a kid, when I was little, um, I was like the sort of kid that old people love. I was, I was a little bit shorter. I, I had really curly hair. I don't have it anymore, thank God. Um, you know, I was short. I was chubby. I had these, you know, big cheeks that, you know, were just perfect for pinching. Um, you know, I was just irresistible um, for, for old people, just for old people. Like, that's, that's it. Like, I'm, I'm not complimenting myself. Um, and so that's how I wound up, um, you know, on school vacations instead of hanging out with my friends or, you know, going to Florida or, you know, the Grand Canyon or, Canyon or any of those other places where you take a kid who's on vacation. Um, I would be in Las Vegas with like 40 of my closest 65 and over friends uh, on a tour bus going to the topless show. And like pretending that I really didn't care about the topless show while also being like, I really care about this topless show. Um, and on the, you know, and it's why uh, instead of going home after school uh, in the afternoons and doing my homework like every other kid that I knew was doing, um, my mom would pick me up and take me to the nursing home with her and I'd just have to make friends with old people um, and play cribbage and hang out and read a book or, um, you know, watch, uh, you know, an 80-year-old guy with Alzheimer's, like, punch a nurse's aide. Um, that, that sort of thing, you know, like, wholesome, wholesome stuff. And so this, this is what I did. I did this for, you know, uh, probably about 10 years or so um, from the time I was 10 up, up until uh, my early 20s. 
It's how I wound up uh, dressed in a chicken costume at a Christmas party my grandfather was hosting for his customers. It's how um, pretty much every Christmas from the age of 18 to 22, um, I was always putting a Santa outfit on and handing out presents at the nursing home um, and like pretending that I, I was Santa Claus and then like showing up later out of my costume and being like, what do you mean Santa was here? I totally missed him. Um, and it's how I wound up, uh, you know, calling bingo um, every Tuesday night for the entirety of, of my middle school years. Um, so when you're a kid and a teenager, you know, even an, even an hour can feel like a lifetime. And so doing this for so long, uh, it felt like multiple lifetimes. Like I, I lived, you know, a whole 60 years while I was doing it. And luckily, during that time, I learned a lot of valuable lessons. So the first lesson I learned, uh, and this is for all of you parents out there, if you have young children uh, and you're thinking, you know, maybe should I bring my child to hang out on an Alzheimer's unit in a nursing home for three or four hours at a time? Um, the answer is no, don't do that. Please don't do that. Um, I'm struggling to find the word, uh, what is it? Uh, traumatizing, That's, it's, it's traumatizing. Um, you, you just see all kinds of stuff you can't, you can't unsee. Um, one of the weirdest sort of experiences I had was when I was 13. It was the, the middle of the summer. I was, I was there at the nursing home. I was visiting my mom because that's what we did in our spare time. Like, you know, when my dad and I had nothing to do on a summer day, like it wasn't like, let's go swimming. Let's go play baseball. It was like, let's go see your mom down at the nursing home. And I show up, and my mom loved to show me off to the residents. That was her thing. And so I come in, and she says, I got to show you off to one of, my, one of my new residents. And I'm thinking, all right, here we go. Uh, and I'm just, I'm like stealing myself for this. And so she drags me in to this woman's room. It's the middle of the afternoon, but it's really dark outside because there's a storm coming. It looks apocalyptic out there. And the room looks kind of like, you know, a horror movie-ish. It's very, it's very dark. There's an old lady under a blanket. The TV's on, but the sound isn't on. Um, I think that she's sleeping, but like, I can't really tell. And like outside, these ominous clouds are rolling in. And so this woman is asleep, and, and at first I think, oh, thank God she's asleep. I'm not going to have to talk to her or anything. But, you know, that never really deterred my mom. Um, so she pushes me over to the, to the side of the bed, and she grabs my hand, and she grabs the old lady's hand. We'll, we'll call her Marie. And she, she forces us into, like, this handshake. And she, she leans over on the side of the bed, and she says, Marie, this is my son Larry. Isn't he so cute? And she's kind of, like, shout-whispering this. And at first I think Marie agrees that I am very adorable because her eyes pop open. Um, but instead of looking at me, she just kind of stares straight ahead through me. And she her, suddenly her grip tightens. And in a voice that can only be described as uh, right out of a horror movie, rather exorcist-esque, she, she says, what a nice boy. He'll never marry. And then she just... She just lets go of my hand, her eyes close, and, and that's it. Visit over. Visit over. So, so traumatizing. That's one thing. Um, having that kind of level of interaction at a young age, very traumatizing. Um, I also learned that 
um, you know, once you start uh, getting a little bit older, um, you know, the things that you do become uh, more important because you're you're not doing as as many things as as you might have used to. Um, and I learned this firsthand calling bingo every night for uh, every Tuesday night for for two years, um, and this was a serious kind of almost professional bingo operation. Um, it was me, it was one of those metal cages uh, full of wooden bingo balls, some sturdy permanent bingo cards, um, and a bunch of prizes that I would hand out in, in a nursing home, nursing home dining room full of maybe like 20 people. And so I, you know, they took bingo very seriously there. And, and uh, they're the most serious of all of the bingo players was this French-Canadian woman named Cécile who uh, was in a wheelchair, and I would uh, go to her room every Tuesday night, wheel her into bingo, set her up with her cards, start calling the game. And she was very she was very intense about bingo. Um, she would start every game by heckling me. I'd start calling the numbers like B-52, B-52. And then from the front of the room, I would hear, you're not saying it loud enough. By the middle of the game, she would start accusing me of like purposefully not calling her numbers as if I had some kind of like bingo conspiracy against her. Um, and then by the end of the night, as I was wheeling her back to her room, she would, you know, kind of grudgingly admit like, oh, you are kind of a nice boy. And I was like, oh, thanks, I guess. And so the, so the third lesson that I learned, um, although I didn't really learn it until till many years later, was that at the same time that I was spending most of my, my waking hours, uh, you know, hanging out in nursing homes and on these, you know, very long trips to Las Vegas and, and Branson, um, I was terrible at being a kid. Like, I was just bad at it. I did not relate to any of the other kids that I was hanging out with. Um, you know, they were all watching MTV and they were memorizing, you know, the, the new Snoop Dogg album and, uh, you know, all of this other stuff. And I was like, I was like, I don't understand. Like, shouldn't we be listening to the adult contemporary station? Like, like what about Amy Grant? Um, <laughs> and like, I definitely wasn't, I, w I was pseudo watching MTV. My, my mom, I, I knew enough from the conversations I overheard between my mom and my grandparents that like I definitely shouldn't be watching MTV. So what I would do is I would put the channel on, but I would turn it on mute and I would watch it for less than a minute, which I worked out in my head was like, I'm not watching it then. Like that doesn't count. Like once you go past a minute and if the sound is on, then you're technically watching it. So I can't do that. But I was just bad at being a kid. You know, I, I couldn't relate. Um, I was more comfortable like eating dinner like at 4 p.m. and uh, complaining about a lot of stuff, which I still do. I'm really good at complaining. Um, and, you know, pushing wheelchairs and, and learning how to like change an oxygen tank in 30 seconds, which I was also really good at. I was the only kid in, in like eighth grade who was like, on April vacation, carrying an oxygen tank on his shoulder through a casino in Las Vegas and um, trying not to like die of embarrassment. So it wasn't all bad, um, you know, but it wasn't all that great either. Uh, and so for every Christmas that I was in a Santa suit and I was handing out presents or putting on a chicken costume and, and doing some kind of stupid dance, you know, there were all of the times um, that I would have to kind of like dodge the weird, lecherous old priest who was always going on uh, the trips that my grandfather booked, and I was always kind of like trying to just avoid being in the room with him at the same time, and and that sort of thing. And and for every, you know, night that I called bingo, 
even though it was pleasant, although definitely it was mandatory and I had to do it and it was not my choice or voluntary, um, you know, there were all of the afternoons I spent uh, hanging out on the Alzheimer's ward and just kind of watching people slowly fade away. So I like to think that as I got a little bit older, I got younger in a way. Um, I spent a lot of my 20s partying really hard, this kind of like drunken reaction uh, to all of those years of, you know, pseudo senior citizenhood uh, that I had had earlier in my life. I'm a little bit older now. I'm, in, I'm, you know, in my 30s now. My life is a little bit calmer, but I, th- I like, I still, I still like to think that, you know, even though I'm not as fast as I was when I was 15, uh, given the chance and an audience over 65, um, that I could put on a chicken costume and still really entertain the hell out of some people. Thanks. Thanks again for Larry for being so flexible. All right, I'm back in the zone. All right. Next up, we have Rachel Forrest. Rachel is a journalist, author, and online content creator. She's a food writer and a restaurant reviewer for the Portsmouth Herald, contributing editor for eatdrinklucky.com, and ghostwrites other people's stories. She lives in Exeter, New Hampshire, but also in Austin, Texas, with the guy she first met in 1983, a dog, some cats, and a parrot. Please welcome Rachel Forrest. Ah, 22. I used to be 22. And this story starts right about when I was 22, 1983, in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, I was, uh, last time I was here, I told a story about when I was in high school. This is about six years later. I had gone to college for about two years, and uh, this kind of Tony liberal arts college in Oberlin, Ohio, and I ran out of money. So uh, I went back home, went to Princeton, New Jersey, and uh, I was working in a little luncheonette. In, on uh, Nassau Street in Princeton to pay off my debt so I could get my transcripts to go to another school. Eventually, that became Rutgers University. So I was uh, working in the luncheonette at the counter, and in walks this young man. He's about six feet tall. He's rail thin, about 110, 120 pounds. He's uh, all nose and ears, shaggy, bleach blonde hair, John Lennon glasses, Chuck Taylor ripped up high tops, ripped up jeans, and he's got this T-shirt. It's white with red lettering. It says, Robert Fripp, one small mobile intelligent unit, March 13th, 1983. Now, that might not mean anything to anyone in this audience, but for a a 23-year-old chick who was really into progressive art rock, Uh, which was really big in 1983, that was like, woo, this guy. And I told him, he was picking up this order for coffee and a roll, and I said, oh, I was at that show. And he looked at me with this like stunned look on his face because there weren't a lot of chicks into progressive art rock in 1983. Uh, There have been many times when I've been in the 5% of women in the audience at one of those concerts. And we started talking. And uh, it turned out he worked very nearby at uh, the Princeton Record Exchange, which had opened about three years before, and is now a pretty famous uh, record store in Princeton and 
like Bruce Pingree, like he knew all about the Princeton Record Exchange. That was like a big deal. Also Tom Coletta. So I was like, oh, that's nice. You know, these guys, these guys I really respect know all about the Princeton Record Exchange and it still exists today. So this guy, Jim, uh, and I started up a friendship. And we used to go to all these concerts. We used to drive into uh, New York City to CBGB's and the Mud Club. And we used to see the Sex Pistols and Black Flag. And uh, there was another club in Trenton, New Jersey called City Gardens where John Stewart was a, a, a bartender. Uh, so we used to hang out with that guy. And uh, we, we saw the Psychedelic Furs and uh, all sorts of bands. It was like the heyday of punk music. Um, and we were really good friends. And uh, eventually we became a little bit more than friends. I don't know what we would call it back in 1983, but I guess about 10 years ago, the kids would have called it Friends with Benefits. I remember the first time I went to his apartment uh, near Princeton and he had this little bunny rabbit that was jumping around his apartment. He, the name was, the bunny rabbit's name was Shithead. And it, <laughs> And it like, you know, it was a really cool rabbit. It just like went to the bathroom in this litter box, just like a cat. And uh, so the first time I went to his apartment, Jim like ran up to me and he showed me this contract that he had made. It was a celibacy contract. And he said he like vowed to himself he was gonna remain celibate for five years. And I was like 23 years old and feeling really powerful from the women, women's lib movement that my mom had you know, like really helped out. Thanks mom. And <laughs> And I, oh, the thought bubble over my head was like, yeah, okay, celibacy contract. Yeah, you could maybe want to tear that up right about now. And we started this great, great friendship and, you know, you know with benefits. And uh, we, we just had a really great time together. Um, we used to go to, you know, all these concerts. There was one night that we went into New York City and uh, we had... Uh, uh, we were, well, we did a lot of drugs back then. We did a lot of like, you know, we tripped a lot. I don't know. I don't know if people still do that anymore. There's other things that people do now. <laughs> but I remember like coming back from the mug club one night and we were like really, really high on acid. And we had uh, Brian Eno's Another Green World in the cassette tape, cassettes, in, in the car. <laughs> and um, and we, so we had, we were listening to Brian Eno's Another Green World and we were stopped at the stop sign and Brian Eno himself walked across the street. And we looked at each other, and I said, did that really happen? And he said, yeah, yeah, that really happened. And then we just drove off and never talked about it again. So we palled around for a couple of years, um, but because it was, you know, the early 80s and, you know, people were footloose and fancy free, meaning me, I was footloose and fancy free. Um, we were really serious about each other and uh, I had kind of the same thing going with a couple other people. And eventually, <laughs> eventually I met uh, a, a guy in, in a bar in New Brunswick, New Jersey, where I was eventually going to school at Rutgers and uh, an assistant professor for political science. And uh, he had these sparkling blue eyes, a little fedora hat, and he really liked to cook. And he looked like Kurt Russell. And he was really cool, a little bit older, and uh, I got engaged. And then I had to tell Jim uh, 
that I was going to get married. And I also had to tell like two other people. <laughs> so <laughs> um, they were all pretty cool with it. But Jim was the only person I invited to the wedding. Uh, and after the wedding in uh, 1985, uh, I never saw him again. 30 years later, uh, and a lot of life later, that first marriage lasted about a year and a half. <laughs> um, and I had a couple of careers and a couple of uh, uh, other weddings. <laughs> I'm not proud of it. Just hope springs eternal. What can I say? Uh, I was sitting in my office, my little cube, at the Portsmouth Herald, and uh, for some reason I thought it would be a really good idea to make a spreadsheet of all the dudes I'd ever gone out with in my entire life. Some of you have done this. I know. <laughs> this, is about th this is about three and a half years ago, and I'm writing all these names down, and I get to Jim, Jim Chivaroli, and I'm like, oh... What ever happened to him? And which I did with, you know, about 10 other names. And so I get, you know, this is three and a half years ago. So, the, you know, 20 years ago, no internet, really, to speak of. Now, you know, you can find anybody and everyone can find you. And uh, so I'm, I'm on the internet and I'm typing in his, his name. It's an unusual name. So I thought, well, it's going to be really easy to find him. Uh, look on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and just the general Google, and I cannot find him at all. I cannot find his name. He's got a really unusual name. It's Chivaroli. It's an Italian name. It starts with CH. Can't find him anywhere. I knew where he came from in Pennsylvania. Can't find him. So I just sort of, sort of gave up. About a week later, here we go. <laughs> About a week later, after 30 years, and I couldn't find him, I get this email. Hello, Rachel. How are you? I haven't seen you in about a million years and haven't found you on the learning box. I thought I'd send an email. It's Jim from way back in our Jersey days. Yep, Jim Chivaroli's still alive and kicking. I've always wondered what became of you, and there you are. I'm still about the same, hopefully a little smarter, definitely a little older. Some things are hard to avoid. I live in Austin, have been tattooing as an alleged professional for 20 years or so, and am as out there as you would imagine. I hope the years have been kind to you and would love to hear from you. All the best, Jim. That's so sweet. So I sat there for a full 10 minutes thinking, I just tried to find this guy a week ago. And I'm like kind of a skeptic. I'm not like a spiritual person or anything. I'm like, whoa, this is really, really crazy. So I sat there for full 10 minutes, and the first thing I emailed back was, Jim, great to hear from you. Did that Brian Eno thing really happen? I've been thinking about this for the last 30 years. And he emailed back, and he said, yeah, that really happened. I never, ever talked to anybody about it because it seems so weird. Okay, so we start emailing, and we tell each other about our lives, and eventually he starts sending me letters, like real old school letters, so, you know, back in the olden days, and little, little mementos from Austin, 
and I send him postcards. Um, it took me a full month to be able to talk to him on the phone. I was really nervous for some reason because I knew I had broken his heart in the back of my mind. It was never really talked about, but I knew I, there was something had gone wrong, um, mostly my behavior that had gone wrong. <laughs> and it took me about a month to be able to say, all right, I'm gonna talk to you on the phone. At the Portsmouth Herald, there was this little room, and Jen Stevens sure remembers this room. It was a little room with a phone in it that we used to go into to do private, you know, interviews. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't know what people did. Did people really do, like, interviews in there? I don't know. So I would go in. So eventually I said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you on the phone. And I went into this little room, and we talked on the phone for the first time. And it was just like this voice from 30 years ago was exactly the voice that I had remembered. And we started speaking on the phone. And uh, that was in November of 2012. And uh, after that, you know, we, it would just sort of started to escalate. Um, I made a commitment eventually to go and visit him in Austin, uh, but I made it four months from our first phone call because he hadn't seen me for 30 years. I was 30 years older and 50 pounds heavier, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not the same person. You know, I had all those vanity feelings. You know, I'm not the same person. It's He's going to think I'm, you know, I'm not, he has this buildup in his head of who I am. So um, I'm sure my coworkers at the time remember this. I started, <laughs> I put everything off until the following March and uh, I started walking every day at lunch for like an hour. I went to Zev Yoga, I plug for Zev Yoga every, like four times a week. I did Pilates tapes and I dropped like 25 pounds. My 52-year-old ass like lifted up in ways I never thought possible. It was the greatest impetus. I, like, I, I, I gained it all back, but anyway. It was the greatest impetus you know, to, to really get in shape because I knew in my heart I'm gonna take my clothes off in front of a guy I've not seen in 30 years. This is not gonna be good. It was what it was. So eventually, so I had this date to go down and see him in Austin in, in March of 2013. And uh, I, I get on the plane in Boston and uh, I'm all, like I have my hair all done and my makeup on. I'm, I'm pretty trim um, from all that work. And I get to Austin and I walk into the bathroom. And uh, I mean, we had been, emailing and talking for five months. I mean, we were in love. We had talked about being in love. We said, I love you on the phone. And we, we had talked about all the stuff that had happened in those intervening 30 years. We had laid everything out on the table, but still there was all this anxiety. What if I'm not up to his expectations? What if he's not up to my expectations? What if we get together and it doesn't work the way it has been on the phone or text or internet or letters or little gifts here and there? So I got off the, off the plane in Austin and I'm, I go into the bathroom and I'm like, I'm gonna primp, you know, I'm gonna like, and I'm like, had this, put my hands on the sink and I'm like, 
I'm doing that kind of thing. And this older woman next to me said, dear, are you all right? And I'm like, I'm like, well, okay, well, I'm about to see this guy I haven't seen for 30 years, and we've been talking, and we're in love with each other, but he's going to see me for the first time. I don't know what's going to happen. And she's like, you know, it, it's going to be okay. You know, it is, it is what it is. I don't think she said that. It didn't seem like it would come out of this woman's mouth, but she was calming me down. She's like, it's going to be okay. She like put her hand on my shoulder. It was nice. It's going to be okay. Just go out and do it. So I walk out. I walk out into the sunshine in Austin uh, about three years ago, actually three years ago uh, this week, and uh, I could see like this whole like entourage right next to me, like on the side of the road, this, this woman and two of her friends, they're all like staring at me. And uh, Jim um, comes down the road and he's in this 1965 Corvair convertible and he pulls up and he jumps out and he runs up and he's got an old t-shirt on and ripped up jeans and his Converse high tops and these round glasses and the shaggy hair, no longer bleached blonde, a lot of gray. And he just runs up to me and looks at me in the eyes. And it was like 30 years had never ever happened except for the fact that I wasn't like a cold-hearted bitch anymore. <laughs> I was absolutely in love. And that's where I live now. We've been together for th three years. <laughs> and he even, and oh, and here's, a, he still has a t-shirt <laughs> that he wore the, the day that I met him. And he still has a glass that he stole from my wedding. So all you women or men looking for love, think back to all the people that you knew in the past, because those might be the people who make your future. Oh, nice. Thank you, Rachel. So up next, to close out the night, we have Laura Clemenson. Laura lives in York, Maine, and 29 years ago, she came over from Wisconsin in a Mayflower moving truck to help two guys start a telecom, telecom company, and she never left. Laura loves other people's stories so much, she stitches them into each bag she creates from retired sales at her company Hoistaway Bags. Laura believes if everything goes as planned on vacation, you don't really have a good story to tell. Can you please welcome Laura Clemenson? Yep, can't see any of you out there. It's perfect. So I was thinking uh, with the, you can't see anybody, just so you know. Um, so if you all leave, I'll have no idea. So I was thinking before, um, after I put my hat in the ring about sharing a story, it's like, I wonder if there's actually a definition of what is a past life. And so I went to the www and typed in past life definition, and there is. And so Yahoo, so anyhow, that's what I have here. I thought you'd appreciate what somebody said is, this is the best definition. I kind of agree. 
So it says, a past life is one that your spirit soul has lived out before in another body. Once the previous body dies, your spirit leaves that body, keeping the knowledge and lessons you learned in that life and takes them with it into another life, like this one. Almost, although most people do not have an active memory of past lives, there are clues that they are there. Things like knowing that you should not do something or how to do something, but you have never had any experience with said things. I kind of look at it as if uh, Milton Bradley got together with Parker Brothers and decided to combine the game of life with Clue. They'd call it past lives. <laughs> and I think some clues are more obvious than others. I'm going to try this here. So my story actually starts uh, January 25th, 1975. I'm 10 years old, and uh, I'm on a family farm in Wisconsin. It's a typical Saturday morning uh, where it's barn cleaning day. And if any of you have never been in, on a farm uh, in a town of 400 people where the animals far outnumber the people, uh, barn cleaning kind of goes, at least on our farm, like this. We have an old, basically antique John Deere bucket loader, and my dad would um, drive into the barn, scoop up all the manure, and it would be me and my dad and my grandfather. My sister miraculously got out of all out of this type of stuff. I have no idea. Uh, anyhow, so he would drive in, he would duck, he would drive out, he would put the manure in the manure spreader. My grandfather and I were pitchfork duty. I had three jobs on Saturdays. One of them was taking the manure from places that the bucket loader couldn't get, putting it in the middle so the bucket loader could get it. And um, then when the manure spreader was full, my grandfather, his job was then to take the other antique John Deere out the back 40 and spread the manure. My second job came up when um, my dad was then doing something else. Grandfather was out spreading the manure. And my dad had this philosophy. He totally believed in the power of the human fence. Uh, we had tons of gates and fences, but his, he, I even asked him, I'm like, why do you want to put your 10-year-old daughter in front of all of these, like, 100 head of cattle with a stick and without a fence and just kind of, like, tap and talk to them and say, no, this is, you know, freedom right here. You don't want to go there. And he's like, it's quicker. You're right there. You can move. You can get out of the way. So anyhow, I was not so large, not so in charge, but I mastered that stick tapping and talking to these steers where all my other friends were either sleeping in, eating Captain Crunch and watching cartoons. I'm communing with nature and smelling a lot like it. Um, so noon came around and my third job was to get the mail. Dirty job. Somebody had to do it. It's my job. So um, the way the the way our farm was set up is the barn was about a football field uh, away from the road. Our house was over there, and you could see it from the barn. My grandfather, my grandparents' house was on the other direction, but you couldn't see it. And in between was this gravel road, 
before that was corn cribs, um, an abandoned pig pen, gas tanks. So anyhow, we're breaking down for uh, taking a break for lunch. And um, bundled up, walked up this gravel drive, and past the corn cribs, past the pig pen, and I'm walking, and I hear, stop, turn around, and go home. Now I'm 10. I'm a good Catholic girl. I look around. My grandfather isn't there. My dad's not there. Somebody's talking to me. And I'm like, okay. So I kind of like take another step forward, and the voice says, stop, turn around, go home. And so instead of doing exactly that, I stopped, I turned around, and I went back into the barn, and I told my dad, yeah, I'm not going to get the mail. I'm going to let you get that, and I'm going to go home. And he's like, okay. I was like, it's all weird. So um, I go home, having lunch, and about 10 minutes later, my dad comes in, uh, very distraught, yelling at my mom, and he's like, Carol, quick, call the ambulance, dial 911. Mom is outside, his mother, my grandmother. She's blue, she's not breathing, and she's in the snow. And I'm sitting there eating my lunch, and I'm thinking, I'm very sad to know that something horrible happened to my grandmother. But I remember that voice, and I'm like, holy crap. Whatever that was, it was really direct, and it was protecting me from having that experience to find my grandmother, because I would have. And what was more important is I didn't completely follow the directions, is stop, turn around, go home. I went back into the barn. So my dad actually got the mail, as opposed to uh, having his dad find his wife dead outside. Kind of heavy, I know you're all, are you all, all still out there? All right. <laughs> so fast forward, uh, 10 years earlier, I mean later, excuse me, it's 1985, I'm almost 21, a junior in college, UW Oshkosh, and I just swore off all men. <clears throat> Don't remember why, seemed like a good idea, <clears throat> and I just remember pontificating to myself, done, 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 not going to look at any boys, didn't care. Got a phone call from my friend Roberta, and she's like, hey, you want to go out? It's Friday night. I'm like, sure. So we go to this bar, and we run into um, this guy who she had this mad crush on. His name is Hank, and uh, his roommate, Mark. And I know what you're thinking, and you're right. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel, for uh, making this easier for me. Uh, so, uh, 36 hours later, uh, we spent all that time together, and I know that this is a judgment-free zone because of Rachel's story. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, he was most adorable. Uh, he was an artist. He cooked for me. We walked, we looked through art books. We talked serious things. 
And Sunday rolled around, and back to reality. He had to go to work, and we said goodbye. And I walked, long walk of shame, you know, days later. Oh, my goodness. Anyhow, I walked back to my apartment and decided, for some weird reason, I was going to pack up all my dirty laundry and drive an hour and a half to do laundry at my parents' house. I've never done that before. Uh, gas was a lot cheaper back then. Um, so anyhow, packed up all my uh, laundry and my little Toyota Celica, driving down the highway, cranking the radio, and I hear these words. I'd say voices, but you already know I hear voices. So I hear words that say, I taste Mark's kiss. I go turn the radio off. The clock is right there, and it's 2 o'clock. And I was like, okay. I don't say stuff like that. And kind of like look around, wait a little bit. And I was like, I don't hear anything else. Turn the radio back on, drive home, do my laundry, come back. Now it's 10 o'clock at night. And I'm thinking, I will never see this boy ever again. I blew it. And 10.30, the phone rings, and it's Mark. And we're talking for, I don't know, half an hour. And he says to me, he's like, you know, uh, I have something really weird to tell you about that happened to me today, but I don't want you to hang up. I'm like, okay. I'm like, what could that possibly, what could have happened to you that's really weird that I'd hang up? So I'm like, what is that? And he said, well, when I was at work today, I tasted your kiss. I'm like, now I'm not hanging up, but I'm not saying anything. And I'm like, what time? And he's like, 2 o'clock. I go, how do you know it's 2 o'clock? He's like, I looked at the clock. He's like, why do you ask me what time it was? I go, because that happened to me at 2 o'clock. When he said that, I'm thinking to myself, uh, oh, my God, I have kissed so many boys. I've never, this has never happened before. And uh, I, I don't speak like that, and I must marry him. So neither of us are saying anything. Neither of us are hanging up. And this is kind of what happened next. Seven months later, we get engaged. Eight months later, we get married. Six years later, we welcome our baby girl. And six years after that, we're divorced. And this is what I know about what has progressed over time. And again, going back to clues. When I was young, things were very direct. Stop, turn around, go home. Over the period of time that I was married, there was a lot of, it was a tumultuous relationship, but there were a lot of really intense clues of things that had happened. I'm like, okay, I still need to be with this guy, and this is really hard. So when we got divorced, about a year after that, I'm like, you know, Mark, I don't think, I mean, we didn't get married to get divorced, but I don't, I don't think we were meant to be together till death do us part. I think there's something about us coming together to actually have this amazing human being. And I think that was our job. So I hope that as time goes by, I get a little bit better. Um, there's been a bunch of those types of things in the past that 
were really clear that I'm like, yeah, I knew better. And I really kind of wish that I had listened to those clues a little differently. Um, but I think that's all part of the process. So anyhow, thank you. <laughs> Contemporary station? Like, like what about Amy Grant? Uh, I have a picture pinned to my wall. An image of you and of me, and we're laughing with love at it all. Look at our life now. All tattered and torn. And we fight and delight in the tears that we cry until dawn. 